2 Corinthians 5, we're going to start at verse 16 this morning as we continue our study, and we're going to be talking about what it means to be a new creation in Christ. Let me read this passage for us. Paul says, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that are so hopeful, so encouraging that speak of new life, a new beginning, a new creation. Thank you, Father, for what you have accomplished for us already through your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we think about these things this morning, may it both encourage our hearts as we walk with you, but Lord, may it also make us uh, bold in terms of our witness to share this good news with others who do not yet know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. A new beginning, a new creation. Isn't it wonderful to know that we serve a God who can make all things new? And it's not just in the future when we talk about heaven or the day that's coming when there will be a new heaven and a new earth, but even today, today in this life, when we commit ourselves to Christ, He makes us a new creation. And old things have gone and new things come and there is this significant change in our life. The Apostle Paul experienced that when he met Christ on the road to Damascus and he was converted. I mean, he was convinced that Jesus Christ was not who he claimed to be and he was out to persecute Christians. And God stopped him in his tracks that day and his whole life changed. You know, if you were to study the scripture, you would find many statements that tell us what happened that day that we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, if you have done that. One author said that there's over 40 different things that happened the moment that we accepted Christ as our Savior. Another author, Neil Anderson, is a list of over 60 statements of things that are true of those of you who are in Christ. When we place our faith in Christ, there are all these statements in the Scripture of what is true of us, and it's amazing to read. Well, this morning, we're going to look at just three of those. I didn't think you'd want a 66-point message this morning. It'd take us a little while to get through all of those. So we're just going to look at the ones that are highlighted here in this passage today. What are some of the changes that took place when we came to know Christ? Number one, we have a new perspective, Paul says. Verse 16, we have a new perspective. 
Before we met Christ, we evaluated everything from a worldly point of view. And Paul says, from now on, we do that no longer. From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view because of the difference that Christ has made in our life. In 1 Corinthians, when he had written a letter to these same believers, he had told them that the natural man, the person without Christ in their life, doesn't understand the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. They are spiritually appraised, and the natural man does not have the Spirit of God in him, so he can't understand those things. And he looks at uh, what Christians do, he looks at what's said about Jesus Christ, and it can seem like nonsense to him. I mean, I just don't get it. Why would Christians, you know, on their weekend take time to go to church? Why aren't you just, you know, at home today getting ready for the ball game or something like that? You know, they just look at life differently and they don't understand why this is so important to spend time with God or to share our faith in Christ. When we were in that situation before we came to know Christ, we evaluated things by a worldly point of view. Success was measured by external things like money or status or fame, fortune, uh, you know, and we maybe in our life tried very hard too to fit in with the crowd that we thought was important. Whatever we valued, you know, whatever group we wanted to be a part of or whatever success we thought was really significant, before we met Christ, we built our life around those things and we thought that was the answer to finding meaning and purpose in life. And Paul would say, you know what? That's how I was too. That's how I lived my life. For Paul, his uh, in-group that he wanted to be a part of was a religious group. It's kind of interesting. He tells about that in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. And he said this. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, you know, in kind of his own pride and what he had done, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day. You know, that's the way it was supposed to be done. If you were born a Jew, you know, your parents were to bring you in to be circumcised on the eighth day. We did that. I was born of the people of Israel. You know, that's God's chosen people. I, I was in that right group right from the start. I was born of the tribe of Benjamin, and you know, my name really was Saul, and I was named after Israel's first king, who was also from Benjamin. And so, you know, there's that connection. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was born a Hebrew. I lived my life as a Hebrew by the strictest rules. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee, part of the most conservative group. You know, we had the right qualifications, right schools, right training, all of that. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Paul would say, I was in. I mean, I built my life around those things. I was at the top of the class. That's what was important to me, and that's what I pursued. But God changed his life and changed his thinking. You know, we look at that list, and that might not be our crowd. Probably wasn't the crowd you wanted to run with before you came to know Christ. But everybody sort of has a thing in mind that they value or a group that they want to be part of. You know, and if you want to be a part of the bikers, you're going to dress like a bikers. If you're with skateboarders, you're going to want to be and dress like skateboarders. Or if you're an athlete, you want to dress and talk like an athlete. Or if you're in the dance line, you know, you want to be like the other dancers or theater or music, whatever it is. We're all like that. 
We want to fit into that group. And Paul would say, you know what? We even viewed Christ that way from a worldly point of view. There was a time in Paul's life when he thought that Christ was just another misguided messianic pretender. He's just another guy who's coming along. And at that point in history, you know, when when Paul lived, there were many false messiahs. There are all kinds of people that were claiming to be the one who was going to come and they'd lead people off on this tangent or that tangent. And Paul thought Jesus was just another pretender. And the thing that sealed the deal for him was the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross. Because you know in the Scripture, in the Old Testament, it says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And if Jesus was cursed, how could he be God's Son? How could he be the Messiah? There's no way. It just did not fit. It did not make sense to him at all. And then Paul met Christ on the road to Damascus, and everything changed. He saw Jesus Christ. He was stopped in his track when a light from heaven blinded him. He heard this voice that called out to him saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And that was the beginning of a change for Paul where his whole life turned around. Paul realized that Jesus is Lord and God. He began to realize that Gentiles in Christ are my brothers And those Jewish believers I thought were my brothers are not, if they are not in Christ. And he came to see that the most important thing, what matters most in life, when you look at people, is whether or not someone is in Christ. That's the great divide. That's the most significant thing that we need to understand and know. We want everyone to come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's what makes the difference. And Paul, in that same passage in Philippians 3, would say this. He said, Whatever was to my profit, all those things I once valued, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. Those things, they're like trash to me now. They don't matter. They are not significant in light of eternity. What matters is do people know Christ? How do we see the world? Is our greatest treasure knowing Jesus Christ? Is that what we prize more than anything else is knowing Him and walking with Him and living in a way that pleases Him? And do we see people through His eyes? Do we see the world around us and people in a way where we look at that and we love those that God has brought into our life and we want them to know Christ too. We want them to be forgiven, to come into the family of God and to be looking forward to this Christ-filled eternity. Because the alternative to that is horrible. Eternal separation from God. Why did that perspective change? Why do we think that way as believers? And why is it, you know, whenever, say, a prayer request comes through on the prayer chain where someone is seriously ill and may be facing death even, that most of us ask the question, do they know the Lord? Do they know the Lord? 
That's what comes to mind for us when we think about it. Because even if a person gets well at some point in their life, we're all going to die. And so we ask that question, do they know the Lord? Why did that perspective change? It is because we are a new creation in Christ. When God did this work in our life where He opened our eyes to see His Son and we came to place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we became a new creation. That's what is so wonderful about this statement that Paul makes in verse 17, that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. And the old is gone and the new has come. And what does that mean when he says the old is gone and the new has come? He's talking about our conversion. What took place at our conversion? And at that conversion, our eyes were open so that we came to see who Jesus really is and we placed our trust, our confidence in Him as our Savior and Lord. We asked Him to forgive our sins, to come into our life, to lead us and guide us. And our sins were covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. We were forgiven. We received the Holy Spirit who came to live in us and we were born again. All of those things happened at that conversion experience. And because of that, our old thoughts, habits, speech, and attitudes, all of that began to change. We saw Christ work in us, and those changes came about in our life, and not only did we begin to see it and experience it, but others could see it too. I love the story that Lee Strobel tells about his own conversion. Lee Strobel, you know, is a pastor and teacher. He, uh, for many years, he was a journalist, worked for the Chicago Tribune, won a Pulitzer Prize for his writing. I mean, he was really climbing the ladder, you could say, in that area of his life before he met Christ. And he said this, he said, My daughter Allison was five years old when I became a follower of Jesus. And all she had known in those five years was a dad who was profane and angry. I remember a time when I came home one night and I kicked a hole in the living room wall just out of anger with life. And I'm ashamed to think of how many times my daughter ran and hid in her room just to get away from me. My anger, my temper, my frustrations. But five months after I gave my life to Jesus Christ, that little girl went to my wife and said, Mommy, I want God to do for me what he's done for Daddy. You know, it wasn't long Bible studies or discussions. It wasn't apologetics or any of those things. At age five, all she knew was that her dad used to be this way, used to be hard to live with. But God had changed his life, and if that's what God is like, and he can do that for my daddy, I want him to do that for me. And she, at the age of five, asked Jesus to come into her life. It's marvelous, marvelous. What a testimony of the change that Christ could make. Lee Strobel said, God changed my family. He changed my world. He changed my eternity. I mean, He changed everything in terms of the way that He looked at life. At our conversion, something decisive happened. We became a child of God. The Bible says we were transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, All of these things took place. We didn't see it visually with our eyes, but in the heavenly realms, this significant change took place. And what we began to experience 
for our part was greater joy, greater peace, a sense of being right with God, a change in attitudes, new thoughts coming in, all those things that we saw. But in the heavenly realms, these significant things took place. For those of you that are in the Greek class, when Paul says the old has come, that verb tense there is an aorist tense. It means that this took place at a point in time. All of these significant things. Boom. It was done. The old is gone. Aorist tense. Point in time. When he says the new has come, it's interesting, he changes it. It's a perfect tense. Perfect tense means that there was past action with present continuing results. Something happened decisively at the past. It's like a a dot with a line and an arrow going this way. And there's this continuous change that came because of what happened at that decisive point in time. What took place and what continues to take place is our sanctification, this process in this life of becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, I know in what I'm saying and what I'm going to come to next, I'm doing something that Dr. Kaiser would say that we need to do in our sermons. And that is in our sermons, we also need to put some cookies on the top shelf. You know, not, not always be speaking down here, but there are times when you've got to put some cookies on the top shelf because you need to stretch those of us who need to think more deeply about the significance of these things. And that's really all of us need to be stretched and think more deeply about it. And there, I want to give you a definition of three theological terms this morning that help explain what happened and what continues to happen in our life as Christians. And you've heard these before, but maybe you've never just sat down to think about them in kind of a, a systematic way. One of the words the Bible uses to describe our conversion is justification. Justification. And justification is an instantaneous legal act of God where he declares us to be righteous in his sight because of Christ's death for us. We come to know Christ. We place our faith in him as our Savior and Lord. And in the heavenlies, there is this legal transaction that takes place when we are born again. God looks at us and we are sinners. And how can a sinner be justified in the sight of God? What God does is he takes the blood of Jesus Christ is what covers our sin. It made that atonement. Jesus paid that penalty that we deserved. And so God in His action on His part as the judge declares us to be righteous in His sight on the basis of Christ's death for us. Not only then does He take our sins and place them upon Christ, but He takes Christ's righteousness and covers us or clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. So that when he looks at us, he doesn't see, you know, Rick Stanghill, a sinner. He sees Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died for me. And he does that with all of us who are in Christ. Moment in time, we are declared righteous, we who are sinners. It's amazing. But the second term is sanctification. And sanctification is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now why does it say it is a work of God and man? It's interesting, sanctification is a cooperative work. God is the one who provides the power. God's the one who gives us His Holy Spirit. God's the one who changes our heart. But in this work of sanctification in this life, we need to cooperate with God in the process. 
And the way we cooperate with God in the process of sanctification is through our obedience, time in the Scripture, time in worship, time that we spend thinking and living out our faith and allowing Christ to work in us. It's when we yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit or we get up in the morning and we say, God, would you fill me and use me today? Here I am. Lord, would you direct my thoughts today? Would you guide me in what I'm doing? It is that cooperative work. When we disobey, when we rebel, when we are stubborn and hold on to our sin and our pride and our rebellion, we don't grow. We don't experience the sanctification that God wants us to. That's why it is a cooperative work. God supplies the power, but we must yield ourselves to Him. And then thirdly, the third key term, and I love this one, is glorification. Glorification is when it all comes together. It's the final step in redemption. And it will happen when Christ returns and He raises from the dead the bodies of all believers for all time who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who remain alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like His own. That's what we've been talking about in the future. We talked about what is to come, what happens when we die, and how we will have this time in between when our souls go to heaven awaiting the final resurrection. But that day's coming when we're going to get that new glorified body that is just like Christ. And our sanctification, you know, reaches its climax here in the sense that it's complete. It's done and inside and out in our spirit as well as in our physical body now, we will be free from sin. That battle, the struggle with the world, the flesh, the devil is all going to be gone. It's going to be done. And we will be that person that God intended us to be from the very beginning. You know, when Paul talks about when someone's in Christ, he's a new creation, he is talking about a miracle that takes place that is just as significant as the original creation. When God spoke and the world came into being. And how did he create the world? You know, it was by his word. I mean, he spoke and it was. And how does God make us a new creation in Christ? It is by his word. It's by the written word that we hear the gospel and it is by the living word, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. And by the word of God, we are changed and we become a new creation in Christ. And so he goes on to say that all of this is from God. God is the source of our reconciliation and He's the one that we are reconciled to. Our sin had caused this separation from God. It created this alienation. We were an enemy of God. We were hostile to God. Sin is not some small minor thing to God. We as sinners sometimes think that. That's no big deal or it's a small kind of thing. And yet it is an infinite crime against a holy and awesome God. And He can't just overlook it like it's some small thing. That's why He sent Jesus. And verse 21 in this passage explains it so simply, so profoundly. It is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took our sins and placed them upon Jesus, the righteous one. 
It doesn't say God made Jesus a sinner. Christ never, never became a sinner. It was because he was innocent that he was worthy to pay that penalty that we deserved. But God took our sin, placed it upon him, and counted him, looked upon him as sin for our sake, and then he poured out his wrath upon his only son. God placed our sins on Jesus as our substitute. And he made his son the object of his wrath and judgment for our sakes. That's what this verse is saying. Jesus died as our substitute. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God doing that? The the love of a father who loved his son more perfectly than we can ever imagine, but who also loved us. His creation. His love more than matched our sin and rebellion, our alienation from Him. And so God, who is holy and just, could not simply ignore sin. There had to be a way to pay this penalty that sin called for. And yet God loved us, and in His love and His mercy, He provided a way of sending His Son to be that one who would die in our place. And not only does God do that, but then God did it so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. He took this one's life, Jesus, who lived on this earth, who understands our weakness, our failings, our temptations, yet lived without sin. And by His perfect life, He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled all the requirements of God. And God in this great exchange then takes His righteousness and puts that upon us, the sinner, so that we can be counted as righteous, we who are sinful. It's staggering to think about what God has done for us on the cross. But this is the gospel. There is no other way that man can be right with God. There's no other redeemer. There's no other mediator between God and man except Jesus Christ. This is the gospel we preach. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So what does that mean for us? Well, that's where Paul moves to the implications of this and the rest of this passage, and I'll move through these things kind of quickly. But we have a new responsibility. We have a new responsibility. And he tells us in this passage that we are Christ's ambassadors. He has given to us a ministry of reconciliation. It's not just for Paul, not just for pastors, not just for missionaries. It's for every believer in Christ has been given this ministry of reconciliation. And we've been given a message of reconciliation. It's the gospel. It's the announcement that God has forgiven our sins in Christ or that we can have eternal life. Turn from your sins. Turn from your rebellion. Turn to Christ and be saved. It is the greatest news that the world could ever receive. I mean, and there is nothing more urgent, there's nothing more necessary for people to know than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word ambassador is helpful in understanding our responsibility. If you think about what an ambassador is, an ambassador is an authoritative messenger. He speaks on behalf of his sovereign. 
He speaks in the place of His sovereign so that when He speaks, the King speaks. For the believer, when we speak, God speaks. That's an awesome thing. I mean, an ambassador who goes from this country representing the President in the United States, he speaks with the authority of the President. When you go and you share the good news, you share the Gospel, you share the Scripture, it is God who is speaking through you. You are His authoritative messenger. That's a pretty serious responsibility, isn't it? That's why in the next statement, an ambassador doesn't have the right to change or edit the message. And frankly, that's where a lot of people get in trouble today or churches or denominations that move away from the authority of Scripture. They get in trouble. We don't have the right to edit or change what God has said. God meant what He said and He said what He meant. You know, it's that kind of deal. Share the Scriptures. Share the truth of what God has said. And let the Holy Spirit do its work. And thirdly, an ambassador, his responsibility is to communicate the message clearly and accurately. To be as faithful, as clear as he can. And we need to communicate that message both by our words and by our life. Because, you know, if your life isn't consistent with the Gospel, you can undermine everything that you're trying to say. I mean, that's just hypocrisy. And it doesn't mean that we need to be perfect. We're not without sin. We're going to have our struggles. But when we are sharing our faith with other people, they ought to see our good progress in the faith. They ought to see the change that Christ has made in us so that they see the reality of what we are talking about. That was Paul's aim everywhere he went. And so Paul writes, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That knowledge, the change that Christ has made in us, should fuel our evangelism. It should drive us with passion to want our friends to know Christ, our family to know Christ, our relatives, our co-workers, students, anyone that we come in contact with. If we really care about them, it should fuel our passion. Because God has given us this ministry and this great privilege. And Paul will go on to say, Therefore we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. Now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. This is the age in which we live. This is the time in which people have the opportunity to come to Christ. There is no opportunity to do that after death. And it is a warning to both believers and unbelievers. For the believer, it is this warning to give yourself fully to God. Don't... Don't take God's grace in vain. You have been given this wonderful gift. You have been given all the resources that you need to live a godly life in Christ. You've been given this great ministry, this great inheritance, this great treasure of the Gospel. Don't squander that. I mean, just don't live your life, you know, messing around with just worldly things that aren't going to matter in the end. But give yourself to the work of the Lord and think about how He can use you in your present situation to be that kind of witness for Christ. And for the unbeliever, it is a warning to come to Christ today. Don't put that off. Don't think that you have lots of time. Don't think that you can do this anytime you want. Come to Christ today.
Today, if you hear his voice, respond to the message. We have a new perspective. We look at life differently because of Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And it continues to come as we are changed day by day. And we have a new responsibility. We are his ambassadors. And we have the responsibility to share this good news with those that we know. I want to encourage you this morning to take that bookmark that's in the bulletin today and use it as a reminder to pray for those people that you know who do not know Christ. And use it as a reminder to look for opportunities where you may be able to initiate a conversation or ask God to raise something up that's going to come up one day that you can talk about and you can share the gospel with them. On one side are a number of things that you can pray for as you think about praying for those who don't know Christ. And on the other side, you can list their names. Maybe you just want to put down first names. You know who they are in case this falls out of your Bible. If you didn't want somebody to know, that's okay. You can put last names, whatever. But use this. That's the most important thing. Use it as a reminder to pray and to look for opportunities to share your faith in Christ. You know, if all of us would do that, take that to heart. I mean, we had 600 people who said, you know what? I can do that. I can do that. Can you imagine what God could do this year? As we began to pray for five, seven people, you know, 600 times seven, 4,200 people, that's a lot of people we could pray for and see God work. Let's do it. Let's pray. Father, as we bring this before you today, thank you for the work you've done in our life and the change that you've made. And when we think about those who don't know Christ and opportunities we have to share, Father, would you direct us by your Holy Spirit as to who we should pray for, who should be on our list where we would faithfully, consistently pray for them, that you would do a work in their heart to bring them to yourself. And maybe we'll be the one who has the privilege to lead them to Christ, or maybe it'll be somebody else who shares that and leads them in prayer, and we're just apart behind the scenes, and they may never know it until eternity. But Father, would you use us all to be faithful messengers and witnesses for Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.